about how you became interested in becoming a physician and, uh, and in uh, orthopedic surgery in particular. Sure, so thanks for having me on, Scott. Uh, my family, uh, there's a number of physicians in my family. My father is a uh, psychiatrist. He immigrated from Haiti, um, met my mom, who was a nurse at that point. Um, they had several kids, and we all seemed to gravitate towards healthcare. One of my sisters is a uh, GI physician, the other one's an OB, and my brother is a uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. So my, um, <laughs> I did have some options. We can definitely say it runs in the family. Yeah, it runs in the family. I definitely had some options, but I think my, um, my compass was pointed towards medicine. So when you're, when you're in that environment, it's very easy to sort of continue along that path. So for me, after college, I went over to Japan for a little bit. I played soccer there. I actually played soccer in, in college, at Davidson College. Nice. Shout out to Steph nice. Curry and the Oh, very good. Group. I think you played soccer, right, Amanda? You a soccer player back in the day? Back in the day. Back in the day. Uh, go ahead, Dr. Julian. So I played soccer in college, and then after that I went to Japan for a couple of years, then came back and went to medical school at George Washington School of Medicine. So then finally, awesome. yep, after that, um, decided to go into orthopedics. And I'd say the reason for orthopedics is, is that we get to see the immediate impact from our interventions. Patient has a broken bone, we can fix the patient, the patient's up walking the next day. Um, and also the, just the ability to use your hands and um, also a little bit of your muscle as well to uh, pop hips back in, pop shoulders back in, and to really make a difference in people's lives. Excellent, excellent. So a little bit of instant gratification for both the patient and the, and the practitioner. Yep, there's, there's nothing more gratifying than hearing a hip sort of clunk back in after it's been dislocated, and then <laughs> patients can walk after that. Very nice, very nice. And so do, I know you specialize in the hand. Do you treat other areas as well, or, or at this point are you totally focused on the hand? Um, I treat all areas oh, okay. from, from a trauma standpoint. So uh, in my group, we all take general trauma calls. So if someone comes in and they have a femur fracture or they have an ankle fracture, well, we treat that. That's something that um, every orthopedic surgeon can do. But as an elective um, practice, that's uh, purely hand. Oh, I understand. Okay, so there are certain, certain things that come in oftentimes in urgent or emergency care that, that, that most uh, uh, folks are, are skilled enough to treat, but then in terms of elective surgery, that's where you really focus on your specialization. Exactly. Got it. So, so let's talk a little bit more about elective surgery. I know this was something that was very uh, deeply affected during the pandemic because mm -hmm. some hospitals, um, or I guess really all of the hospitals in the U.S. put some restrictions on elective uh, procedures. Tell me a little bit more about that. Correct. So most hospitals, um, they ceased doing about 75% to 85% of their elective cases. Wow. And the reason for that was, well, the resources to run the operating room, the resources to uh, take care of patients, they really weren't there. The beginning of the pandemic really showed us how ill-prepared we were. So we really had to triage what we were doing. And it was, um, it was a time to prioritize which cases needed to be done. So the elective cases, uh, in my in my hand in my case, uh, things like carpal tunnel surgeries, trigger finger surgeries, those purely elective cases, we had to postpone them because we had to make space for the truly emergent cases, the fractures, dislocations, the infections. So we had to go forth with those cases. 
Got it. And we were talking a little bit before the show about this, this concept of elective surgery, because you had noted uh, one of the reasons that you were interested in surgery is because uh, you know, folks uh, come to you oftentimes proactively, wanting to get better. Uh, so it's almost uh, ironic in a way that we think of these as, as elective whenever you really, there really is a condition there that needs, that needs treated. Tell me a little bit more about the difference between elective and non-elective surgery for, uh, for the audience. Sure. So the elective cases are ones that um, we do. Let me back up. Hang on. So let's start with the emergent okay. or urgent cases. So urgent emergent cases, those are the ones that um, require immediate attention. So someone has a fracture and their bone is sticking out of their skin. That's an emergent case that has to go today, possibly tomorrow. Uh, infections, things that are life threatening. Really, we try to characterize our cases or group our cases as ones that are uh, life-threatening and those are the ones that we have to do in a very short period of time. Now, elective cases are ones that do help you from a uh, physical standpoint in orthopedics, but they're not life-threatening. So for Got example, it. if you have knee pain and you have knee arthritis uh, and you need a knee replacement, that's an elective case. It will not cause any life-threatening uh, life consequences if you don't do it, but it will make your life better. So that's an elective case. Got it. Understood. Understood. And tell me a little bit more about the adoption of technology during the pandemic. I know in our industry, uh, clinical trials, uh, folks have adopted uh, remote and decentralized trials, something which we had the technology to do for a long time, but it simply wasn't adopted. Tell me how telemedicine was adopted, particularly in surgery, where there obviously has to be hands-on care. Definitely. Telemedicine was um, something that was a little taboo prior to COVID-19. Um, telemedicine was used in dermatology, so there was something called telederm. And the reason for that was, well, patients could take a picture of a rash or a skin lesion, send it to a dermatologist, they could figure it out usually without seeing the patient. Another, um, another field that used remote technology was radiology, diagnostic radiology, because usually a radiologist is looking at just the x-ray. There's not a clinical picture that um, is as important, or if there is a clinical picture, it's usually one or two sentences. So in radiology, um, oftentimes this would get diagnostic radiology. This would get outsourced to um, a different part of the state or possibly in a different country, and they would get equal outcomes. So that's where telemedicine uh, really got its genesis. Now, fast forward to COVID. Uh, prior to COVID-19, about three to five percent of visits, office visits, were telemedicine. And then COVID forced us into this situation because we were not able to see patients in the clinics. They were closed down. We had to figure out a way to still deliver high quality care, but also make sure that the patient and the staff and the physicians were all safe. And so we adopted telemedicine. So there are some aspects of telemedicine which um, just might be a phone call, but then we also uh, determined how to use HIPAA compliant video visit software to go ahead and you know, have, this, um, have a clinical visit. Got it, got it. And uh, you know, sometimes things. Uh, this may be a, a, a taboo, a taboo subject, but sometimes things come down to the dollar. Uh, is was there was there, was that a play too? Was there a matter of just not having the right billing codes for some of these uh, telemedicine remote remote visits? How did all that work? I suspect there was. In my practice, uh, that's not an issue because um, with permanente medicine, uh, everything is um, it's it's capitated and it's all taken uh, right, care right. of. So for us, we don't look at the patient and 
equate that with dollar signs. We're all about just delivering high quality care, which is, a, which is a feature of permanent day medicine. Um, for other practices, I think that was, a, that was an obstacle. And that was probably one of the reasons why we've been slow, so slow to adopt telemedicine. But now, since it's been forced upon us, there's no going back. Have you received orthopedic surgery? Weren't you uh, in a that major motorcycle? Okay, go ahead, go ahead. This was my question to you, actually. Have you ever had any type of orthopedic surgery yourself? No, I've not had any orthopedic surgery, but uh, one of the reasons, it goes back to your questions, one of the reasons why I went into orthopedics was I broke my back when I was in sixth grade. I was a wrestler, and I was put in a move where I uh, had a fracture of my back, and no one knew what it was for the first two weeks. I went to a chiropractor. My mom said, oh, just put some heat and ice on it. You'll be fine. And then finally, she took me to an orthopedic surgeon who um, took the x-rays, suspected there was a fracture, and uh, got a CT scan. Lo and behold, fracture the back, so I was in one of those big plastic back braces as a sixth grader for about, yeah, for about three months. Any um, thoughts on chiropractors? <laughs> not on the air. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting. interesting. Yes, I, uh, going back to your question, yes, I yes. have had orthopedic surgery. Uh, it was not for a motorcycle accident. It oh. was for another incident. We don't need to go into it. Oh, fair enough. I uh, broke my collarbone. The bones were more than an inch apart, mm -hmm. so I had to get a pin, and then I had to get another surgery to get the pin removed. Mm -hmm. They said they would save the pin for me. Never got it. You never got the pin. Disappointment. It's often no. a pathology lab somewhere. I wanted that souvenir. <laughs> so that's, that's interesting. Um, clavicle surgery, is mm -hmm. it's a very common surgery, and like you noted, uh, when you're more than a centimeter or two apart and there's over 100% displacement, uh, it's usually an indication for surgery, especially for younger people. Um, because the clavicle is so, uh, it's so subcutaneous, it's right there, uh, the two options to treat that surgically, one is a pin, mm -hmm. and where do they insert it? Do they insert it this way, or was it through here? Uh, well, I have a scar mm -hmm. going across, and I have a scar on top. Correct. So the they... scar on top is worse, mm -hmm. but my orthopedic surgeon apparently uh, was doing plastic surgery before mm -hmm. he switched to orthopedic. Mm -hmm. And so he did a really, really, really good job with my scar in the front. Mm -hmm. So my guess is the scar in the front was to take the two pieces of bone and line them up, and the scar mm -hmm. in the back was to actually place the pin. Yeah. So that's what it was. The other option, they have these big, bulky plates that they put on your clavicle. Mm -hmm. And also, that requires usually two surgeries. So the first one, fix the bone. The second one, most people want them removed. Yeah, well they had me, they didn't want to do the surgery at first, mm -hmm. but then apparently the bones were moving farther apart. Mm -hmm. uh, so they had me in this brace. A figure of eight, kept, figure of eight harness. Yes, mm -hmm. horrible, horrible. So I was walking around, I was huh. 17. Oof. I was walking around high school with this brace that makes you walk like totally upright and weird. And it's super painful. And uh, yeah, it wasn't happening. And then I remember after I got my second surgery and it was finally healed, I saw some poor kid walking around my campus with one of those braces on. It was horrible. So, so speaking of uh, plastic, plastic you, you said it was originally a plastic surgeon? Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, what was the name? Has anybody watched the TV series Grey's Anatomy? Have you seen the show Grey's? McSteamy. McSteamy, yes. he was the plastic surgeon. The plastic surgeon. What was the name of the orthopedic surgeon? 
Callie Torres. Callie Torres. So I, in preparing for our interview today, <laughs> I watched some video footage of Callie Torres, and I, I, I saw it years ago, but I was shocked. She's kind of mean to her patients. So what do you think, as, as, a, as an orthopedic surgeon in real life, what do you think of Dr. Torres's uh, bedside manner? I think all surgeons, and orthopedic surgeons included, um, we can be a little bit direct. So um. I think she does need to work on her bedside manner a little bit, be a little more compassionate, be a little bit more empathetic. Um, but that's, that's very commonplace. We hear that as surgeons a lot. So as surgeons, we all try to learn how to hold our, hold our breath, um, control our heart rate, and talk to patients. Got it, got now, it. Now, on Grey's Anatomy, uh, it's implied, actually it's overtly stated, that orthopedic surgeons are the jocks of the surgery world. You made a comment earlier saying you need to put a little muscle into getting those bones to crack. Do you agree with this statement? I do. Most okay. <laughs> and I've I got, saw I've, that coming. <laughs> I've got evidence to back this up. So um, orthopedics is physically demanding. It is mm -hmm. a, it's a hard specialty. Um, and you learn this early on. You learn it when you are um, doing your rotations as a med school student. Uh, when you see people having to forcibly um, reduce a joint, meaning put a joint back in. So, so if someone dislocates their shoulder or dislocates their hip, it takes a lot of force to be able to put them back in. Now it takes a lot of leverage too, uh, but it also takes a lot of muscle. Um, the surgeries themselves, um, oftentimes the patients are a little bit bigger. Uh, so it requires a lot of uh, muscle to hold up the bones, to hold the patient's legs, do these different things. Um, in addition, orthopedic surgeons work very hard um, in terms of the hours they work. Um, it's never been referred to as gentleman surgery. There's some other uh, fields that are uh, gentleman surgery, uh, but orthopedics is not one of them. Got it. Got it. What? Uh, w w w I'm now I'm curious. Which are the which are the gentleman surgeries? Head and neck surgery. Ah, uh, uh, urology. Okay. Is it, is it is it is it due to the the more uh, precise uh, area that you're working on the the the, the smaller uh, although with the hand you're 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 getting the gentleman's territory with the hand then I suppose because that's one of the more complex if not the most complex area for orthopedic surgery. Uh, I I am and actually that's one of the reasons I went into hand surgery. Uh, there was that finesse component of it. Uh, hand surgery encompasses a lot of plastic surgery. It encompasses vascular surgery and then orthopedic surgery as well. Um, now, going back to when I broke my back, I really thought I wanted to be a spine surgeon. Uh, and during my rotations, doing spine surgery, I, I felt there was, a, there was an occupational hazard to working so deep in a spine for so many hours. Now, you compare that to, ortho, to um, hand surgery. We're sitting during surgery. Our posture is oh, up this way. We're looking down with our surgical loops down into a field. It's, it's a lot, uh, you don't put as many miles on yourself in hand surgery compared to some of the other uh, fields of orthopedic surgery. Got it, got it. So orthopedic surgeons are the, are the jocks of, of, uh, of medicine and hand surgery are the gentlemen of orthopedic surgeons. You're a bit of a gentleman jock, you might say. You've got the best of, best of both worlds going on. Could be, could be. I think I fell into that one. Didn't I? <laughs> Very nice. Very nice, awesome. So I'll, I'll say we may we may cut this out. I'll, I'll, so so Amanda was roasting me earlier on the <laughs> chiropractic thing. I believe it or not, in another life, 
I was a licensed chiropractor. In another life, I was a licensed <laughs> chiropractor. I, I gave it up. I'll tell a quick story. I gave it up because I felt as a chiropractor, I could have the right tools, but, but the, the industry wasn't set up in the right way mm -hmm. to give me the right, the right resources. Because you don't work in a hospital. You don't have the colleagues. Yeah. You don't have access to, say, go down the hall and get an MRI. Mm -hmm. what, if, what if she had said, I'm not going to th through the hassle. I'll just see my guy on, on Monday. And so, uh, and so I ended up uh, 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 getting, you know, staying in healthcare, getting out of chiropractic. So I think a lot like you said, um, you're dealing with probably the most important organ in the body, right? And you don't have that support network. Um, now, if you had a chiropractor embedded in a neurosurgical practice, that's what I always thought would be the dream. That makes because sense. You're, you're absolutely right. You're, you're not treating the, the uh, you're treating the spinal cord. That, mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's the goal of the chiropractor, right. even if that's not the actual execution. Definitely. Battle. So, uh, and then and back to your point about just the financial components of things. I don't know if they, they being the uh, National College or American College of Neurosurgeons, really want to invite chiropractors into taking a piece of their pie. Because in every single specialty, there's overlap. In right. spine, there's overlap with neurosurgery and orthopedic spine. So neurosurgery has the closed vault, they've got the brain. Right. Orthopedics has the spine, and prior to probably about 10, 15 years ago, uh, neurosurgeons did not instrument the spine. They would decompress the spine, but they would never instrument the spine. Then they started, because that was the task in the sort of the, uh, the field of the orthopedic surgeons. Now there's a lot more overlap, and so there's a little bit of fighting back and forth there. Uh, in hand surgery as well, there's a little bit of overlap with plastic surgery. So we do some flaps, they do a lot more flaps. Um, so there's, there's always that, that issue of when do we cross into their territory? How much do we need them? Do we need them? What can we do? So and the, you know, when you take into, a, take into consideration all the financial constraints and all the financial implications as well, you, um, it starts to become obvious why people don't like to share. Right, right. And speaking, speaking of sharing, there was a neurosurgeon in Grey's Anatomy too, wasn't there? It was Dr. Dreamy. McDreamy. McSteamy <laughs> is the plastic surgeon. Um, What's his name? What's his actual name? I'll come back to it. And Derek Shepard is McDreamy, the neurosurgeon. He also uh, is the chief for a while. The, 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 there will only be one, there will only be one chief in my mind. Uh, that's when I stopped. That's when I stopped watching. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Julian. Yeah. Uh, it's been a pleasure, and and, and we've learned a lot. Um, uh, again, uh, 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 Chief of Orthopedic uh, uh, Surgery at uh, Kaiser Permanente, Mid Atlantic. It's, uh, it's been it's been truly a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much.